Alright, Revelation 14. Alright, uh, Revelation 14. We're going to get through this chapter here tonight. We're willing. And, uh, uh, but there's a lot of content. Um, I've approached this chapter, uh, I hopefully in, in a manner that, um, that will give some, some really good understanding because we, we are now kind of getting into the last half where all the stuff of Revelation is kind of coming together and we're seeing, thank you very much, I appreciate that. So uh, let's go ahead and jump right on in. Uh, let me give you the, an introduction, just a couple of points that I want you to be aware of from this chapter. One is chapter 14 contains three movements. Three movements. In other words, uh, a word for, for, uh, for what I'm describing, I'm going to give you a, a big theology word it's called pericope. You write it down for pericope. Okay? Uh, how many of you know what a paragraph is? You know what a paragraph is? That's in Bible terms, as it were, we call it a pericope. It means a selected text or passage of scripture. In chapter 14, we have three, what I would call, pericopes in this chapter. Uh, and it's, and it's, it's a precursor to the final events of the tribulation. That's your blank for letter A. Um, the, the final events of the tribulation and the second coming across. The last two movements, the last two pericopes, I'm going to combine them tonight because they have one common theme. Basically, they're angelic messengers. Uh, and, and, and there's four different ones. Uh, some commentators prefer to combine these two movements into one, and, and, and that's what I'm going to do. By doing so, we don't compromise the message of the text. Uh, what it does, it, it allows a more simple flow uh, of, of the text and of the meaning of the text. So, um, I like simple, right? Okay? My, my, my theme is, you know, KISS. You know what KISS stands for, right? Keep a simple sleeping. That's exactly right. And uh, so I, I don't mean that derogatory to you. I'm talking about that's me. Okay? So uh, let's just keep it simple. Well, we're going to jump right in. Pericope number one is the Lamb and his 144,000. Remember, we have already seen this number before and the reference to these people. So let's go to verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like a roar of many waters and like the sound of a loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their hearts, verse 3. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one can learn that song except the 144,000 who have been redeemed from the earth. Verse 4. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie is found, for they were blameless. As you recall from our study in chapter 7, these 144,000 represent the saints. The saints. In their complete number. And if you remember, I talked about different um, uh, different interpretations of that number because there are uh, there's some uh, theologians who are quite credible who said, well, no, that's actually representing uh, those who were Jews who were redeemed 
during during the tribulation. Uh, we we talked about the legitimacy of that. If you remember, and if you don't have uh, a study in chapter seven, uh, we'll be glad to get you one. They're also online, and you can listen to the recording uh, of our study that night. But I went through those, and we talked about ability. Uh, but uh, we we kind of settled, or at least I have settled, on an understanding that the one hundred forty-four thousand represents a complete and total reference to all saints. And the reason why we got to that, I don't know if you remember, you may remember this, is that all the indicators of, of messianic Jews and and, and 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 how God interacted with them was the same with God's interacting with us. Like we, we only come to Christ by faith. Okay. Uh, that, that's it. Is by grace through faith, and that was even that was Old Testament salvation. That's how Abraham was justified. Okay, you remember? Uh, Abraham believed the Lord. That's faith. Abraham believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And so, when you follow that line of thinking in the theology that Paul taught, that we are as as Gentile believers, we are engrafted branches into the olive tree, which is symbolic of, of Israel. Okay, we kind of come to the understanding that this 144,000, it seems to be just a reference to the completeness of those saints there. They are now formed as a worshipful assembly, offering praise to the Lamb of God in His holy city, in His holy and heavenly city. That is what is referenced by Mount Zion. It is just a term, it is the reference, uh, it, is, it is a formal name. Now, when we get to the latter part, we're going to talk about the new heavens and the new earth and that new city, which is Jerusalem, coming down from the new heavens. And we talk about all that. Well, that city is coming down from the heavens. What do you think it is now? It's going to be up there in the, in the heavens, so to speak, as it were. And, and that is our Mount Zion. Let it be. Their praise is described by John as, and the Bible uses the word, the roar of many waters. The roar of many waters. And also, the sound of loud thunder. And, and the Bible also talks about harpists playing their harp. Now, this imagery is John's attempt to describe what he is hearing in terms that he is familiar with. He knows what it's like to hear loud thunder. So do we. He knows what it's like to hear uh, 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 the roar of many waters. He was on island. He had water all around him crashing in waves. He also was familiar with the sound of hearts. We are not as familiar with the sound of hearts anymore, are we? We don't, we don't hear them live uh, very often. Uh, and so we, you know, we would hear a guitar or a piano or something like that. He, he's just using imagery that's familiar to him to let us know this is what it's sounding like. It is not to be intended as the Rabini actually playing hearts. I know that that's the... In the bird you see, you know, you get your wings, you get your harp, you get your halo, and all that stuff. So, Alright. Let us see. The inability of others being unable to know the song being sung by the 144,000 is because they did not have the same shared experience. That, that you know, God has to, when He's revealed us, there is a new song. He's put a new song in my mouth. Why? Because I have been redeemed. I don't expect unredeemed to sing the same songs I sing. They can attempt to. But I can promise you, it does not sound the same. I heard somebody else say about the, talking about music and, and Christian radio. said, static on a Christian radio sounds better than music on a secular radio station. <laughs> Uh, well, I don't know about that. Static is static, but 
I, I do know that a tone deaf Christian will sing amazing verse better than they'll confess. You don't, I mean, so. The imagery in verses 4 and 5 are used to denote spiritual purity. That's important for you to uh, understand because John is actually building upon a theology that is present all throughout the New Testament. Uh, without reading everything there in your notes, I'm just going to point you to two passages of Scripture. One is found in Ephesians 5, verses 26 and 27, and then uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 15 through 20. Let's turn there very quickly, and let me uh, kind of share with you this theology or this imagery that John is referring to. First of all, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse, let me get it in verse 25 to kind of add the context. It says, Husband, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having, uh, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And that she might be holy and without blemish. That purity, that purity that was kind of referenced in Revelation, is a play back to the theology and to the imagery that we are the bride of Christ. And that we are going to be in His presence in a pure state. That is why it is incumbent upon churches to remain pure, to strive for purity. And that is why, uh, uh, that's why, uh, uh, as, as pastor of this church and, and, and working with our leadership, particularly our deacons, that we know and understand the process of church discipline. Why? Because it is our method for us to keep a check on one another, for you and I to be accountable with one another. And when we are found in sin, how do we process that sin and, and seek forgiveness and restoration and healing and growth? Why? Because we want to be wearing a very white dress at the marriage supper of why? And Jesus is telling us through John that my bride will have a white dress on. Okay? So that was that, that whole description there. Let's go back to, um, well, well, first of all, uh, down in verse 32, just to make sure you all know the connection here. Verse 32, Paul writes, This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Okay? So not only does this have immediate applications for husbands and wives, the, the broader application is that Paul's talking about, hey, this is the way Jesus relates to us and us to Jesus. Jesus is the groom, we are the bride. Alright, now 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is our next text. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he, uh, he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every way of sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. I had a theology professor once say about this particular verse. He says that I've never read a commentary or from a theologian who addressed the meaning of that text properly, he says, but I will just say this. It is obvious that Paul is making the category of sexual sin very, very different from other types of sins. Think about the text here. 
Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. In other words, it, it almost seems like sexual-oriented uh, sins have way different repercussions than, let's say, armed robbery, or cursing, or getting angry, or getting into a fight. There's just, there's just different baggage that comes with that. He says in verse 19, Or do you not know that, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Um, so that's, that's that whole description there, uh, basically verses uh, 4 and, and 5. Moving on now to verses 6 through 20. These are the, let me first of all read uh, verses 6 through 13. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead, with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation, tribe, Language people. Underline that right there. That's just God listen, God is a missionary God. Um, God came to all nations. He came for all nations. And his redemptive message, his redemptive person is to touch every nation, tribe, language, and people. So you're familiar with this verse, I know, but just want to remind you. And he said to God, voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Another angel, the second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen, is died on the grave. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured at full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night. These worshippers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name, here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest on their labors for their deeds follow them. Alright, well, in these two parentheses, we, we, from, in other words, from, from verse 6 to the end of the chapter, there are at least six different messages. In other words, six different uh, angels. And each have this message. Well, we read about the first uh, three or so. Let's talk about... Uh, the first one, angel number one, pronounces a judgment to come. A judgment to come. Uh, and we see that in, I believe, what, the first seven, uh, excuse me, verses six and seven. Uh, what is he talking about here? Well, if you look at those two verses, then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel. What other one that or how I think Because that's different than what we normally think about. And, it's, and, and, and theologically speaking, this is a different gospel. Uh, so Monday we finished up our last uh, uh, connect group. I'm hosting a small group in my house, and, and I was talking about our study, and I mentioned, I said, "Do you know that Bob has two gospels? Two gospels." And they looked at me like I had lost his car in my ears. So no, we got that. What do you mean two gospels? I didn't have one gospel. Well, actually, there's kind of two. Let me explain here's why. Angels are not privileged to preach the gospel. 
They were not given the Great Commission as we were. That responsibility for the Great Commission is given to us. The message they were preaching is a reminder that God is the Creator and He alone deserves worship. This is a, a, is a return to the message of Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18 and following, what theologians call natural theology. Natural theology. Uh, uh, if I could maybe tweak that phrase a little bit, I would call it the natural gospel. The natural gospel. In other words, that the angels can tell us that if you look out and look at the created order, you will know that there is a supreme God. That's what Romans 1 is talking about. Romans 1 is the indictment. It's, it's Paul's way to introduce the, the sin indictment to all of humanity. Okay, let's, let's look at that. And just in case y'all aren't familiar with it, let's turn to Romans 1 uh, very quickly. And, and we'll see what he's talking about here. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Listen to verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. And the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they, did, they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. They became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And then, uh, and then uh, Paul, just in, in an obviously sort of God-ordained uh, message here, in verse 24 says, Okay, God gave them up. In other words, that's the way they want it, that's the way they got it. God gave them up. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up. Verse 28, God gave them up. In other words, they had, they had opportunity. They could perceive clearly that what, uh, uh, one argument uh, that, that you hear about in school and, and uh, when we talk about creationism and stuff like that, you hear philosophers use the term the uncaused cause. Okay. Well, what caused this universe? Some say, well, a big bang. Okay, well, what caused the big bang? A chemical reaction. What caused the chemical reaction? Well, some, some, some rules of chemicals. Well, where did the chemicals come from? In other words, there had to be an uncaused cause. Something had to happen that just couldn't have happened on its own. There had to be a creator. There had to be something to set all of, the, all of these things in motion. How many of you have ever seen the movie God's Not Dead? Okay, he the, the boy in college is arguing that very point. Using very different terminology, but he's arguing the same thing. And he and, and it's a great movie. If you haven't seen it, you need to see the movie. God's not dead. Um, college boy is defending his faith against a uh, a self-proclaimed professor who's an atheist. Excuse me, a professor who's a self-proclaimed atheist. So that's that's Romans one. That's that's what the angel is talking about. Our gospel is the one where we proclaim Jesus. That's our gospel. With a capital G, I guess, if you could, uh, if you could do that. Angel number two. Babylon has fallen. That's the second angel. That's his message. In verse 8. 
in, in verse 8 there, you're going to see that uh, this angel, what he's actually saying, he's repeating the word. That's not a scribal error. It's not an error in your print. He was saying it twice. That is a, that's a code for us to just be aware of what's happening here. This repetition serves to underscore or put an exclamation point to his announcement. Now, the identification of Babylon the Great becomes the key to understanding uh, some chapters later on, namely chapters 17, 18, and 19. Let me give you some possible explanations, and uh, part of those explanations, I'll give you what we're broadcasting. Number one, some say that it's just the, it's just the symbolism of evil and the, and the evilness of man. It's just a generic term, uh, term to describe how bad men can be. And by men, I'm talking about all of humanity and the things that we can do. All the mechanisms and, and, and all the manners by which we can do evil. That or that's bad. Um, okay. Uh, a second view takes a literal pro- approach and views Babylon as a reference to ancient Babylonian Empire's capital located on the banks of the Euphrates River in what is today modern Iraq. Um, Futuristic interpreters, in other words, those who view the, the majority of Revelation as not yet taking place, they'll kind of land right here, or some of them have, but it's not been a very popular view. And maybe it's possible, I just think it's going to be highly unlikely that you would see a resurrection of that ancient capital as it was originally. Let us see. A third possibility is that Babylon the Great is cryptic speech referencing Rome. Now, there are evidences that Christians in the late first century would refer to the Roman Empire as Babylon. There is ancient writings where, where we know that that took place. Such references were occasioned by the godlessness and immorality that characterized the two, and even beyond that by the propensity of both to persecute the people of God. Now, this has enjoyed a lot of support by futurist interpreters, uh, but you still kind of have the same downfall. How, in other words, how can you explain an actual resurrection of Rome? How would that happen? Like I said, it's kind of like Babylon. Is it, is it possible? Well, certainly it's possible, but it's highly unlikely. So, what do you think would be a good, safe, and a place that would kind of do justice to the text and, and be fair in interpretation. Well, I'm going to combine the elements of one and three. I'm going to combine the elements of one and three. Here's what I mean. This view would hold that Babylon, which is announced as being fallen, is a world empire that in some way roughly approximates the ancient Roman Empire. However, as in view one, the character, not the geography, is in view. So in other words, we'll have we'll have the character of Rome. In other words, an empire, uh, a, a great um, so, a society slash political power, an entity. Is it one country? Is it five? Is it you know? I don't know. It's it's just an entity. But within that entity are all the elements of fallen humanity and all the evil that we can see today. It'll be there too. And so, kind of, 
kind of keeping that in mind, uh, and, and you may want to kind of highlight that or maybe kind of scribble something in your notes, kind of keep that in your mind so when we get to chapter 17, 18, 19, let's see if that view will hold water. Okay? Which I'm going to argue that it will hold more water than, than some of the other views. Alright? Now, let's go to angel number 3 in verses 9 through 13. This third message is directed especially to those who are deciding about following the beast. Okay, in other words, they, you know, we got that mark of the beast introduced to us last week, so what are they going to do? Right? Well, it's a warning that the easy way, quote-unquote, is really the hard way. That to, quote-unquote, go along with the world means to go away from God. Uh, you know, I, I talk about this in Matthew 7. Verses 13 and 14, talking about the, the, the narrow path and this, this narrow gate and, and the path that, that will lead to life. And then there's a wide gate and a wide path. And there's going to be a lot of people who find it because it's an easy road. Okay. Uh, wide roads are easy to drive on versus narrow roads, aren't they? Now, I, was a, I used to have my CDL and uh, commercial driver's license. And I used to have jobs where I would drive boat trucks and you know, big trucks and, and all that stuff. And, I remember being on roads that were so narrow, I had to keep my tires on the flat line. Because if I didn't, you know, my mirrors would, would slap another truck or car coming along the road. And, and narrow roads are tough to drive on. Uh, you think about the interstate versus the backcountry road. The backcountry road may be harder and, you know, take you longer and, and more effort, but there's a lot more scenery. The interstate is wide. And you can go fast. And there's a lot of people on the interstate with you. You don't see anything. You're doing the same thing as everybody else. That, that's, I tell you what, this may not be uh, the best way to explain it. But one thing I love about the Christian life is it's just because it's different. I get to experience life on way different terms than everybody else. I don't look the same way as other people do. I, I look at things differently. You know, I, I, I go to Walmart differently. You know, you, know how, you know how to get a Walmart Griffin? You leave and repent. So, Lord, I never go back. That's how I do it. You're going to edit that one out. That's not going to be any recording. Uh, the, the Greek text, uh, if you look at number two, it reads if, if any man continues to worship the beast, it's suggesting that there is still opportunity for repentance and salvation. And obviously we see that here. Uh, uh, but if you look at verse 10, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, pour full strength into the cup of his enemy. You can underline that expression. Where have we heard about a cup before? Jesus. But what did he say about a cup? Yeah, he didn't want it. We know why. The cup the cup is, is imagery and is a reference to the wrath of God. And that's what Jesus was, was praying about in the Garden of Gethsemane. Lord, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, your will be done and not mine. There are, uh, uh, verse 11, the, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night. These worshippers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Uh, but in verse 12, listen, here is the call for endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. 
So yes, I mean, during the, the whole time of that tribulation, that time that's set apart between the end of the church age and, and, and God's return, there, there is ample ability uh, for people to persevere in the faith, for them to return to Jesus and, uh, and enjoy His blessings. All right, let's check the last two angels. Uh, we're running out of time. Verse 14. Then I looked, behold a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him, who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle, and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth, and gathered the great harvest of the earth, and threw it into the great, great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress, as high as a horse's ride, for 1,600 stadia. You may have a, a translation very similar to that, or you may have a translation with the, uh, with the uh, translation of that, uh, of that amount. And I have a footnote in my Bible that says that's about 184 miles. Alright, so what's happening here? You have two other angels that we know of talking about the harvest is right. That's letter E. Last message. What are we talking about here? It's a description of the second coming as the harvest over which Christ will preside. I put in a couple of references for you. One in Matthew 13 and a cross reference back in Joel. This is one like the Son of Man and it also lines up with the next passage there, Daniel chapter 7. There are two harvests. Okay? So let's, you know, and there's a lot to digest in this one paragraph that it kind of boils down to two things. One, a harvest of grain, and then another, a harvest of grapes. Grain and grapes. Now, these are perhaps two aspects of the same events of the judgment. In other words, it's, it's maybe, maybe it's probably one time of judgment, but it's going to be handled differently depending on which you are. Are you a grain or are you a grape? Why? The grain harvest may symbolize the harvest of the, of the righteous, and you can cross-reference that with Luke chapter 3, verse 17, followed by the harvest of the wicked. Why, uh, that's, that would be representative of the grapes. Why did we say that? Look at the way that the harvest was completed. Look what happened here. Look at verse, um, look at, uh, the, the, in verse 15. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him, and sat on the cloud, put in your sickle, and read for the hour. For the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat in the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. That's pretty much all I said about it. Nothing positive or negative, it's just, it was reaped. Then, here's the, this harvest of grapes, and beginning in verse 18, we start to see some negativity attached to it. Look at verse 18. Another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. That don't sound good. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle. Uh, you know, put, put, your, put, it to, put the sickle to the grave, to the, the, the right. But look at verse 19. He harvested it, and what happened? He threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. 
That doesn't set out something that the righteous will do. That is, uh, so, taking all of this into account, let me give you three things that I believe we could use to kind of, kind of live or, or use it to uh, uh, help us. Uh, number one, praise to God only belongs to the people of God. Uh, early on, we, we, we saw that this song that was being sung, only certain people could sing it. That's, that's because only certain people can really sing the praises of God. Not only really sing in terms of talent, but to be able to sing the message and understand it. Speaking to one another, Paul says, in songs, hymns, and spiritual songs. We're talking about we were able to, to have a different message. We have been created to worship. That, that, was, that was why Adam and Eve were created. Uh, 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 you don't explicitly read that uh, in the text, in, in the opening chapters of Genesis. But it does say what he did. He came down every day, he put a day, he walked with them, he had fellowship with, with the greatest, with the crown jewel of his creation. That's why we were created. That was God's design for us to worship John Piper, and rightly said, missions exist because it's worship does. That's why we go to the nations with the gospel. That's why we go to our neighbor and, and, and our, our loved ones, our cousins and aunts and uncles and, and moms and dads and children. We go to them with the gospel because there is no worship of God in their lives. If you, if you remember in the call of what Romans chapter 1 was talking about, what was part of that? Although they knew him, they didn't, they didn't worship him. They didn't honor him as the creator. Let it be. In the face of utter destruction and crisis, people will still choose destructive behaviors. Even after those warnings given by those angels. That shouldn't surprise you. I've seen that. I have a counselee in my office sitting right across from me. And we have a prescription for that person to get on the road to to help and vitality and, and what happens they'll, they'll go out not all the time obviously but it has happened and fall right back into that same destructive pattern of behavior and, and, and they are facing destruction pain desperation <coughs> And it lets us know, listen, I bring that up because it lets us know the great effect of sin. I'm telling you, we, we cannot play it. And when we take sin lightly, we take the blood of Jesus lightly. And when we pretend that we're all okay and whatever, I, I don't know. Um, I don't know that we would want to see the reaction of Jesus' face when we say stuff like that. Let us see. People that we know and love will not will not enter into the kingdom unless they accept the gospel of Jesus Christ through our faithful and continued witness.
Desperate times and the effects of sin on humanity during these times as well. 